gun policy was absent from the first Republican primary debate, plus Professor Drew Stevenson on why he asked the Supreme Court to overturn its Second Amendment precedents, and where he thinks the justices will actually come down. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. We just send you one email a week that gives you all the best news on the subject. And of course, if you want even more information and analysis, you can buy a membership as well, and you'll get a second email. Uh, we try not to overload your inbox, but... Uh, we try to bring you all the most important pieces of news that we can in the week. This week, we have the new briefs in the latest Supreme Court gun case, United States v. Rahimi. And so I wanted to bring on somebody who can speak directly to that case, who's actually now involved as a, a one of the amicus or amici in the case, filed a brief. We have Professor Drew Stevenson of the South, Co uh, South Texas College of Law. With us, uh, welcome to the show, Drew. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Yes, I appreciate you coming on. We had uh, author and lawyer Mark Smith on a couple of weeks back to discuss this case and give his point of view. Uh, you know, he's very pro Second Amendment uh, author and, and and analyst, and we got his take. Now, I figured it's time for somebody from a different point of view, and 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 who better than somebody who's actually filed a, a brief in the case? So, uh, can you tell us just a little bit? about that brief itself, what are you uh, and your colleagues arguing to the Supreme Court here? So uh, the brief um, makes three main arguments. And I'm, by the way, I wasn't, I should say uh, up front, I was not the primary writer um, uh, of the brief. Uh, three law professors joined it together and um, all of us and contributed some small part. So, and I believe there's a there's a gun control group involved as there well. There is, and they um, they kind of took the lead on it and had some mm -hmm. um, appellate lawyers who drafted the brief. Uh, it did the primary drafting. But um, so what's uh, what is the what is so the, the main argument? Um, uh, uh, kind of three or four pronged argument is first that um, the government has a responsibility to um, protect not just. Uh, ensure rights and um, personal autonomy and freedom, but also to protect um, people's safety and security from uh, each other. And that that means that there has to be some regulation of violence and the means um, of violence um, because of how common uh, shootings are and, and homicide and so on. So that's um, a, a big part of it, it kind of opens with the government, um, it, it, the Constitution contemplates that the government is there to provide for the security um, of the society and public safety. Um, secondly, oh, there's an and just uh, before we move on from that sure. point, because it's it's very relevant. We, the case is United States v. Rahimi, right? And we talked about it on the show before, but just to give people a brief overview, this is a case where uh, a Texas man was uh, subject to a domestic violence restraining order. A judge found that he was uh, a specific threat to his, the mother of his child, uh, that he was accused of committing violence against her previously. Uh, and then he was uh, arrested for and convicted under federal law for possessing a gun while being subject to that restraining order, which is a felony under 
federal law after he had he had gone on uh, like a basically he's accused of going on you know, sort of a shooting spree where he, he attacked different people at different times and the police went to his house and searched it and they found the gun I believe they found the gun uh, like nearby the restraining order so um, uh, it's fairly straightforward on that point he's he's being uh, but he wasn't convicted of anything else and uh, he's currently facing trial for those other. Uh, shooting incidents. But that's the core of this case, right? right. The Fifth Circuit said uh, this restraining order isn't within the history and tradition standards set by the Supreme Court. And so it has to be, uh, the, the prohibition has to be tossed out. And and so just to give people a quick background on what the case is about and, and then, yeah, go from there. So you're saying and, and, uh, and so, the, look, the Constitution it, protect, off, it, says the government has to protect people's right to life. That's right. There's a, look, there's uh, Rahimi's not one of the good guys, right? He, he And we have to have, uh, most of us want to live in a society where um, there's uh, enough public safety that just random people don't get to drive around town shooting at people out, their car, out of their car window. Um, the second point in the brief is kind of a, a discussion of human rights law. And this is something that is, um, it's hard, I think, for non-lawyers to understand its place in our legal system because it's only partly um, a, an aspect of American law. It's more the subject of international treaties and some of our traditions with the Nuremberg trials and things like that. But the argument is that human rights law includes an obligation to protect um, the safety and security of the citizens from uh, violent people in their midst. And so when it comes to that, this kind of like, there's a, you know, a, a lot of drawing on inter reference to international law and the policies in other countries. The argument is not that other countries control what we're doing, but it, for our country's whole history, courts have um, at least thought it was relevant to consider what other um, developed societies and developed legal systems had done with difficult questions of law, um, like balancing rights versus public safety. Um, and then the, the third argument, and this is the part of the brief that I was actually most involved with, um, uh, really argues that Bruin was wrongly decided and Peller was wrongly decided for that matter, that the fact is the Second Amendment was about militias. And I, I know that that's the Supreme Court has now said otherwise, um, but the, they haven't the Supreme Court hasn't convinced most historians of the period. So there's it's a very prevalent view among people who have really studied the founding um, the, the founding era that and the the background debates uh, regarding the Second Amendment, the, the things leading up to it, how it was understood at the time, who really think it really actually was about militias and the role of militias, the role of state militias versus a federal standing army, and that it was just um, a mistake uh, back in Heller for the Supreme Court to decide that there's a constitutional right, individual right to bear arms for personal self-defense. It's not to say that there couldn't be a statutory right or that there wasn't a common law right uh, to do that. The question is whether this that's what the Second Amendment was trying to address versus as opposed to militias. And then the last part of the brief kind of um, set, argues that even under Heller and Bruin, the statute that's being challenged in Rahimi um, is still valid and should be upheld. Yeah, you know, actually, when I, when I got to that part of the the brief there at the very end, 
Um, I, I thought there was, uh, yeah, and we'll get into some of the other parts, but uh, I don't want to get totally yeah. sidetracked on, uh, you know, relitigating Heller and, and Bruin. We will definitely just go yeah. through this stuff, but I do want to get, I just more want to give people your, mm-hmm. your perspective so they can understand before we start talking about, uh, you know, analyzing the case and how it might go. But, um, you know, there was obviously that section where, where you describing, uh, why you believe Bruin was, uh, incorrectly decided and how you believe it hamstrung hamstrings, you know, governments from protecting people, uh, from dangerous individuals with firearms. Right. Uh, but then it goes right into the part where you argue that Bruin still provides the necessary framework to uphold this restriction on people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders. How do you square those two things? Well, um, two things. First of all, it's very common in appellate briefs for lawyers to argue things in the alternative, to, to say something like, look, this this law is unconstitutional, but even if it is constitutional, it doesn't apply to my client, or to say this case should be overturned. But even if you don't, you could construe the case to allow for what my side wants. And so this is, um, it's pretty common actually for lawyers in appellate briefs to argue one thing and then say, but even if you don't agree with my main point, I should still win under um, this other theory. And um, and I, I we didn't develop the last point, the argument that it should still be upheld under um, uh, even under Bruin, uh, because we know that the government's brief is doing a fantastic job of arguing that, um, and other um, a, a lot of other parties or amicus briefs are going to argue that um, more in depth. And our purpose in writing the brief was to kind of bring up the other issues. Yeah. Uh, so, and and I do want to get into that sure. sort of the different approach uh, that you took compared to say the group like the ACLU, mm-hmm. which took more of a middle way uh, approach to this. But first, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about Heller and Bruin and why uh, what your critiques are of it, why you believe it was incorrectly decided, because that is essentially, it seems to me, the main point of this. Uh-huh. And I want to say at the outset that we're realistic. We know that. Um, that argument is probably not going to win over the conservatives on the court. Um, but there's also, I'm a law professor, and I can tell you that today's dissents become tomorrow's um, uh, majority opinions. Um, it, uh, if you look at things in the long term, when Justice Scalia was first on the court, he wrote concurrent con- uh, dissenting opinions and concurrences in case after case after case. Um, and at first, the majority ador- um, ignored him, and then he won over a couple of other members on the court, and others actually started to get pulled in his direction um, at least a little bit. And so there is a value in arguing and raising an argument and really ar- articulating it, even if you don't think it's going to um, be the ma- adopted as the majority position in the case today, because um it, it could be um, in the future. And uh, as you know, people argued for years leading up to Heller for that the, uh, that the Second Amendment allows for an individual right. So somebody has to start making that argument at some point before you have uh, five votes on the court that agree with you. Um, uh, my, if I could put it in a, a nutshell, 
we have the debates from the people that from Congress when they adopted the Second Amendment, when they when they argued about what the words should be, they and made some changes to the the verbiage before it was sent to the states for ratification. They spent two days debating it, and never once mentioned individual gun ownership or self personal self defense. Um, it was all about militias, standing armies, and Quakers and conscientious objectors and pacifists. Um, and so um, the uh, talking about what, you know, Blackstone said or a legal treatise in um, 1830 said or something like that um, is all stuff that's worth talking about, but it's also worth talking about what the drafters themselves said when they were haggling over exactly how to phrase it. And for whatever reason, the thing that people that Justice Thomas now says is the core right that the Second Amendment protects. It's a little weird that it was never once mentioned, even when the Second Amendment was like introduced to the floor and open for debate. Um, so and and I think that that's important and it's worth revisiting that. And I think in Heller, Justice Scalia kind of just glided right over that and said, well, that's not that helpful <laughs> and, um, for us. And I, I think it's relevant. And I know we can't, we're not going to relitigate it. And I don't think we're going to overturn Heller in this case. But even the conservatives on the court should be aware that there are a lot of us out here who still think Heller was wrongly decided. So sure. Uh, and, and let's just get into that for just a brief mm -hmm. moment here. Uh, you know, essentially, you argue that the right is tied to militia service, it seems mm -hmm. um, uh, like uh, it, it's it, from my understanding of what you guys wrote here. You think it is explicitly tied to militia service that only the people who serve in a militia are guaranteed the right to keep and bear arms. Is that am I, I so oversimplifying it or is that how I, I, I think that that's um, not I wouldn't phrase it like that. I think that there was a okay. lot going on with the militia issues at the time. So one of the other authors, professors who joined the brief, Carl Bogus, has a book out, Madison's Militia, where he really mm. lays forth, um, sets forth an extended argument that the militias were slave patrols and that that's why that including the Second Amendment was a concession to the southern states that they um, would be able to retain their slave patrols. Um, no one he argues, thought that the militias were actually very effective in wartime in repelling a foreign invasion because they had actually kind of been catastrophic during most of the Revolutionary War. Um, mm. My take about but there's the no go ahead. Just uh, just briefly on that point, because obviously this is yeah. it's not the first time that uh, that idea has been raised mm -hmm. uh, and there are counter arguments to it. I mean, I think the most poignant one is that there's no actual uh quote from a founder or a uh, specific reference to this concept that the militia, the second amendment uh, is uh, talking about are actually slave patrols and that the purpose is to, uh, I understand. You know, and, arm those. and my, and I'm not going to argue his, um, his point in his book, sure. but I do recommend it to your viewers. Um, it's a serious book. And even if people mm -hmm. disagree with it, it's a serious book and he really sets forth a case. Um, I, I actually think it's more complicated than that. I think that this, this slavery was part of it. I think that there was um, the first Congress was actually obsessed with how they were going to repay 
the Revolutionary War debts and um, uh, finance veterans benefits and um, how much they could offload this uh, to the states um, versus having the federal government do it through taxes. Um, and so th there was a heated debate between Hamilton and some of the others about where the money was going to come from to pay for armies and militias and weapons and so forth. And there was an argument for privatizing it. I think that the northern states were focused on Western expansion. So Pennsylvania, New York wanted to go all the way to the Mississippi River. And so they really cared about conquest with the native tribes. Um, and that's historically most of the militia activity in um, the northern states was actually uh, fighting natives or occasionally suppressing an insurrection like the Paxton riots or uh, Shays' Rebellion. Um, and then there's the issue of the Quakers. And it's easy for modern people to not understand how big that group was in the founding era and how wealthy and how influential and how politically um, active they were. So the Quakers followed con the first during the first Congress, they swarmed them. They would um, uh, follow them in groups down the street. They would do sit-ins in their office. The Quakers did a sit-in in the first Congress. And a lot of it was focused on slavery, but it was also over militias and making sure that they were exempt. And um, right, because they it, were pacifists, Quakers. they are pacifists. And in so, addition to making great oatmeal, they were exactly well, actually so that they never made were responsible for Quaker oats. That was just a brand <laughs> name somebody came up with. Um, yes. But they in the founding era, they had. Um, a lot of control over the banking system, a lot, um, mm -hmm. almost a virtual monopoly over the uh, whaling and whale oil um, supplies and the, the cross They're a very influential trade. group. A very, very Absolutely. powerful. And so there are, and they spent most of the time debating about the Second Amendment, arguing about Quakers. And then Quakers come up two or three other times during the first Congress. And at, at a couple of occasions, representatives from southern states were actually threatening civil war already over the slavery and abolition issue and and it was mm -hmm. a part of the reason they wanted to the southern states wanted to move the capital out of philadelphia because they couldn't stand all the quakers there um and stuff sure. like that so i think um, that there was a lot there was a lot going on there but i don't think it was just you have to be in the militia to have a gun i i'm not sure that they we're focused on that type of rule, if that makes sense. If that makes sense, right? I, I mean, I, th I I think that the critique of Scalia and Heller and his view of the uh, the uh, operative clause of the Second Amendment versus the prefatory clause, and yeah. and this idea that uh, you know the Second Amendment has uh, is pr primarily about protecting self defense right uh, is is an interesting critique, probably. Uh, a fair one to a certain degree, uh, because it, you know, if you read the founders at the time, their debate over uh, militias versus the standing army, they, you know, most of them talked about being concerned about standing armies as a, uh, a tool of tyrants. And right. they preferred having the people be uh, armed in organized in militias that are, you know, uh, competent so that they could be, uh, avoid the traditional pitfalls of a standing army 
that they had, uh, you know, observed throughout history, uh, uh, throughout the historical record. And, um, uh, you know, so, uh, and then at the same time, to me, it just feels as though, you know, you have, you know, Tenchcox, you have uh, even the Pennsylvania version of the Second Amendment uh-huh. does describe uh, this as an individual right for not just the defense of the state, but the defense of oneself. And so, uh, you know, th- there certainly is plenty of scholarship that people can look in and for, uh, uh, history that they can examine for this. Uh, to me, it, it does feel like perhaps a distinction without a difference. You know, the, the idea that the Second Amendment is there to guarantee that militias can be useful uh, in securing a free state um, because the militia was made up of the people. Like, uh, you know, the right in the in the Second Amendment is guaranteed to the people, right? Not to the militia. But I don't know that the founders really saw any difference between the two. Um, uh, and I guess that's what it comes down to for me when I read, you know, you're ruling even, uh, you know, you guys cite Miller talking about the, the 1934 Supreme court case was sort of the first second amendment case with any, um, uh, ruling to it. Uh, and, and you read that ruling and yes, they talk about the militia purpose, but they're talking about that in context of saying that everyone was part of the militia, that all the people were part of the militia and what was protected by the Second Amendment were arms that were useful for malicious service. Now, Heller does kind of uh, take a, a left turn away from that concept, but it preserves the common use standard that was developed in Miller. But but you kind of get, uh, in my view, at least uh, my understanding of things, this idea that the militia and the people really aren't that, uh, really isn't any difference between the two. And so I... I understand your point, and um, and I also know you. We have other topics that you wanted to cover today. Um, sure. Again, this is why I'll I'm just give you keep... one. Just give you one last. Uh, I, 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 you let you respond, and then we'll move okay. on to the next. I'm going to go back to the Quakers again and say um, there was a very large, um, um, very well organized, and very wealthy group in the country that would have strenuously objected to the idea that everyone is part of the militia. I mean, they were they would engage in tax protests, right? Like they would refuse to pay taxes if they thought any part of it was going to be used for the militia. And um, so they and in the places where there were a lot of Quakers, like in Pennsylvania during the Revolutionary War, there was an acute shortage of firearms available for the people who weren't Quakers and wanted to fight. Um, so the, 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 for the Quakers, this was actually an issue at the time and for the people, you know, James Madison was married to an ex-Quaker, kind of a bitter ex-Quaker, but, um, Dolly Madison was raised as a Quaker. He was very, all the founding fathers were very familiar with them. And I think that they were aware that there was a large segment of the population that did not think that the militia was everyone. And they, that was for them, um, their number one political issue. So uh, I would certainly agree that there were different perspectives on it. Yeah. Uh, uh, we would both agree on that. Probably had a different perspective uh, yeah. uh, from people like, for instance, George Mason, who also mm-hmm. explicitly said that the militia is everyone except for government officials effectively. And right. um, uh, so, you know, the, the, pro- yeah, you're, that is one thing about looking back at history, especially in a test like Bruin, uh, which I think you guys uh, make another point of that not everyone in history agreed on all these points either. Right. Uh, now, although I would say that the Quakers were 
they were powerful, but they weren't. Uh, they were a minority of, of people at the time, too. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's right. Just all right. But so let's let's. Uh, so now that we've established right the yeah. baseline of uh, uh, your point of view, your perspective on on this this issue, and what's in the amicus brief that you filed, I want to get into get just a little bit about the strategic aspects, right? So. You have groups like the ACLU, ninety-seven uh, percent, I believe, had another uh, similar brief to what the ACLU did, uh, where th- they took more of a middle road approach, uh, arguing essentially that, um, you know, they don't they don't say throw out Heller, they don't say throw out Bruin, because like you said, I, I don't think the court is is likely to take those paths. Right. But they do say, you know, the ACLU's brief in particular, I think, is fascinating because um, they talk a lot about. The idea that uh, the, what the government wants to do in this case is overly broad, that their power they're trying to uh, assert they have is is too vague um, and that they're uh, and that additionally, some gun laws, uh, some other of the prohibited persons sections in federal law might actually be unconstitutional as well. But they have a solution where the court can uh still uphold this this regulation at play, right? This domestic violence restraining order gun ban, uh, but through a, a more narrow approach that relies on uh, a dangerousness standard of, um, you know, whether a judge has determined somebody is a danger to them, to another individual or society at large uh, as sort of the, the baseline. But I don't want to get bogged down in the specific uh uh, standard that they're proposing. They're just proposing a sort of third way option here. Do you, how do you think the court is going to actually come out? Do I, you think that's going to be convincing? I. So I think that um, if you just talk about the conservative block on the court, that I, I, I think they have overlapping but varied views about gun rights and um, what um, regulations are permissible and how the Second Amendment um, should be applied. And it it's clear from, if you read all the concurring opinions in Bruin, that um, they said, I'm signing, but I think this. And, uh, and then kind of disagree with some of what the majority opinion says. And so I do want to say up front that anyone who thinks they know for sure what's going to happen in Rahimi um, is... Um, is try must have fortune telling uh, powers because <laughs> um, the fact yes. is that we're not exactly sure um, where all of the different conservative justices are going to come down, and part of the value of a brief like what you're describing, the ACLU's brief, is that they're saying, look, they're concerned about allowing, wanting to protect the rights of domestic violence victims. And saying, well, it's okay to disarm people if the if a court has found um, that they pose a danger. Now, uh, don't get your hopes up if you, if the court is going to um, uh, grant a restraining order, a, a domestic violence restraining order against you. They're probably also finding that you it's because you're dangerous um, that you pose a danger, and so. But it's their way to one thing you can do strategically when you're a lawyer arguing on appeal is try to win your case on very narrow grounds, right? Say, look, we're just asking for a baby step here. All we want you to do is um, protect this people in this type of situation or save the law for this type of situation. And we can revisit all the other um, cases another day. And, um, and for a lot, there's a lot of, 
judges, if they're justices and appellate courts, that if someone's on the fence about what to do, that's an appealing, I don't want to call it a compromise, but it allows them to to not buy the whole farm right now, if that makes sense, to say, okay, we're only deciding this very small point today. And to be honest, that's what Alito, his concurrence in Bruin said, is that that's what he thought he was doing, was only deciding that the New York permitting system um, was gave a little too much discretion to the local uh, to local law enforcement um, uh, without safeguards. And uh, so that type of argument could win someone over who feels conflicted, uh, for example, on the court about what to do in this case. Yeah. And I'm interested in where you you know, like you said, there's no way to predict this. It's just reading tea leaves. You know, we have those, we have Bruin and we have the concurrences that were written in Bruin and uh, certainly the the Kavanaugh, uh, Roberts concurrence Mm -hmm. uh, and even the Barrett concurrence give you some question as to how far they're willing to go uh, in striking down gun laws. And and I think that uh, actually the government's brief in particular made a really good practical argument. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of focus on the historical aspect and and uh, obviously because that's what Bruin requires. But, uh, you know, it's easy, I think, to look at what the Bruin test is and then, uh, you know, forget about the reality of the Supreme Court and how these things tend to work in practice. Right. Um, because... You know, some of those things, some of the critiques of Heller that we we sort of went over earlier, I think it's fair to say that a lot of that stuff that made it in there, like, um, you know, focusing more on self-defense rather than, uh, you know, usefulness in in battle of of firearms, uh, which is what Miller had done, um, probably came from Kennedy because he didn't. Right. uh, They were trying to get five justices on board. That's always the struggle. And so they're trying... Some of these things, you know, I think Heller is, is in a lot of ways a compromise ruling in that regard. And that leads to some of the issues that we've discussed. But um, so, you, you know, the government does a good job of pointing out that this particular law is very popular in terms of how frequently it's been adopted among the states. You know, right. Heller, the handgun ban, really, there are only two places that had that. Uh, at that point in time, D.C. and Chicago. Right. And then in Bruin, there are only like eight states that had that, uh, mm-hmm. the, the law in question, whereas you get to domestic violence restraining order gun bans, and uh, the government at least claims there's 48 states that have that, um, which I think is some anal- some similar mm-hmm. law to that. And uh, you know, the court might not be willing to actually go that far and be that disruptive. Uh, I don't know. What's your feeling on that? Um, I, I, um, think it's probable that they're going to uphold the federal law in Rahimi, um, how they do it or how narrow they do it or what, um, you know, whether they really backpedal from Bruin or maybe they're just, is, is hard to say. I, I agree Mm -hmm. with you that, um, so for example, I, I tell my law students, essentially Roberts is now the swing vote. Roberts and Kavanaugh are, are sort of at this point, sort of the, the conservatives on the court most likely to vote with the liberals. And so it's hard. And I think they signaled in their concurrence that they weren't really wanting to mess with 922 G uh, with any of the sections. That, that's what I understood. Um, and I'm not sure um, based on 
uh, what some of Alito's concurrences and dissents in previous gun cases, like the one about um, unlawful immigrants, uh, that he really wants to, would want to get rid of a law like this. Um, and so I, I, and there's something to be said for a law that's popular among the states. Um, like you said, Heller was a challenge to a, an obscure law, a, an obscure, a, a really um, dr drastic law. And but we have a a phrase that the Supreme Court likes to use. They they talk about the states as laboratories of democracy, um, and they they've used the phrase for about a hundred years. And so, at least for some people on the court, they give some weight to the fact that a lot of state legislators legislatures have wrestled with the policy issues behind this law and actually want something like this. Um, and that matters as opposed to one state kind of going rogue or being a maverick or having a quirky rule. Um, it, it signals that there's a consensus. And so the rule isn't completely crazy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does make sense. And, and you can even see that in Broome because it, at points they're talking about how you know the historical laws; they don't ex they, they they didn't give as much weight to those that weren't adopted by, uh, you know, a large group of states uh, uh -huh. at the time because they don't cover as many people. They're not necessarily considering that to be uh, part of the tradition. I know there's a whole critique on that point too. We don't need to get into, but but uh, it does seem in line with their their thinking on these matters. So right. it'd be interesting to see how they go. Of course, at the same time. Uh, you know, we we know the goal in your brief was that you want to see this all this jurisprudence overturned and and gone. But you know, eventually. I do wonder. Yeah. Right, eventually. Yeah, eventually, like you talked about, you're yeah. you're not expecting that to happen. This here. is the long uh, game. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And and so I'm my I guess my question would be: It's only been a year since Heller. I mean, so, since since Bruin, right? Since Bruin, uh, it's been much longer since Heller, but. Uh, it's only been a year since Bruin. How much do you expect them to really rework that, even with uh, you know what's unfolded in the lower courts? So there's a couple ways that they could backpedal from Bruin in baby steps, right? That they could. So one is to basically adopt um, uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh's concurrence as what Bruin really means. It would not be this first time. Supreme Court has done something like that. Um, back in the Warren Court era, we had uh, we like to talk about Justice Harlan's uh, concurrence in Cat, the Katz case. So there have been times historically where one of the concurring opinions really took on a life of its own and became the rule that the court followed instead of the original majority opinion. And that I, I won't be surprised if that happens. The other thing that they could do that would be a minor tweak to Bruin instead of just throwing you know, uh, throwing throwing it all out would be a very subtle uh, burden shifting, right? And so instead of saying the government has the burden to show that there's um, uh, historical analogs to shift the burden to the person challenging the law, um, that they actually have to show that there wasn't. And, um, and so a, a, that's an aspect of Bruin that hasn't been talked about a lot is it shifted the burden to the government in a way that we usually don't do in constitutional cases. So normally there's a presumption, the courts have a strong presumption that um, laws that are passed by Congress are constitutional. 
And so the burden is almost always on the person challenging the constitutionality of a law to prove that it's not. And Bruin is weird in that it seems to seems to say we're just presuming any law that relates to guns is unconstitutional unless the government can convince us otherwise. And that's um, uh, that's an outlier or kind of a, a weird going off the path for constitutional law in general. So I, I won't be surprised if their sort of way to not get rid of Bruin, but backpedal it is just to shift who has the burden, at least initially in these cases. Hmm, interesting. I think that that would represent a huge reversal in my mind, at least. It, it, yeah, I, I understand it has a lot of implications, but it's kind yeah. of a, a subtle change and it doesn't guarantee that a gun rights group can't win. Um, mm-hmm. Right. A lot of times they're, both sides are still going to make the same arguments. It's just the question of who has to prove their case as opposed. Um, but the fact is, both sides have been trying to prove their case in all these cases up till now. So yeah. that's a fair point. Uh, I'd be I'd be surprised if they went that far. But but we'll uh, I mean, I'd be I'd be less surprised if they you know, adopted that sort of ACLU middle ground of we're going to look at this from a broader perspective because, you know, attitudes on domestic violence have changed so much and even uh, guns have progressed in their, uh, their technology over, you know, the last 200 plus years. And so we're going to take a little bit broader view of what's analogous in this case and go with this, this dangerousness standard. That, that would be something I could see them doing as like a uh, sort of a middle ground, um, I mean, they do need to clarify a lot of this stuff. I they, think that's they do. undoubtable. And, uh, you know, and how, have, how do you actually, where does, what is, what counts as a, a proper analogy? There's still a lot there. And if I could put this in a, just a little bit of larger context with the Fifth Circuit versus the Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit right now is very conservative and in the last couple of years has put out a, a bunch of kind of stridently um, uh, conservative opinions uh, that represented a a big break from prior precedent on in a lot of areas of law, regulatory law especially. And um, to be honest, they haven't been faring that well with the Supreme Court, even though there's a conservative supermajority. Um, the, the the last term, the if you're like ranking who which circuit got upheld the most, the Fifth Circuit was near the bottom of the list um, in terms of how often they got reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court. So mm-hmm. it, it is important to keep in mind that we have a, a Fifth Circuit that is um, uh, not in lockstep with the current uh, conservative majority on the court. That's interesting. And uh, of course, at the same time, I could also see them not being willing to do that that sort of broadening that I just spoke oh. about and taking the Fifth Court. Fifth Circuit's view of this, especially uh, because restraining orders are a different level of due process than criminal convictions, and so like you said at the beginning of this, it's it's we can't know, it's impossible. We, we I think can't. it's good to have these conversations. We can't uh, with with people who understand what's going on, but it's not possible to know. And I do want to say something, if we have a moment, just about what you just said sure. about due process. If I could talk about that, um, it's really not fair to say that there's no due process. I see a lot of you know posts from gun rights groups and stuff saying that there's no due process in these cases. I really don't think that's true. Um, the it is true that a lot of restraining orders are. Um, can be ex parte, um, where one party goes to a judge, but you still have to convince a judge. And to be honest, 
most judges, really the vast majority of judges are going to try to do the right thing and try to be fair. And the other party, even if they weren't there for the initial hearing, has procedures and plenty of process to challenge a restraining order if they think that it was based on a false premises or they've been wrongly accused. And so, and I understand that there's a range of views and reasonable minds differ about how how much due process we have um, with restraining orders and temporary injunctions and things like that right now. But it's really not accurate to say that there's no due process. It's um, it, the question is how much process are you due, right? And, yeah. um, and so no, it, I agree is with it that. enough? Yeah. I, I agree with that. There certainly are due process protections. And in fact, in this, in Rahimi's case, I mean, there was some uh, details about whether he, he, I don't think the actual hearing happened, but he agreed to waive the hearing. Uh-huh. That's why I didn't mean it. I, That's why there, there's some more detail to that. I just think that on the general point is that there is, there are less due process protections for restraining orders than there are for criminal convictions. That's, mm-hmm. that's all I mean. And, and, that's, that. and so and I don't true. know if the court will find that to be, uh, you know, too much of a problem like the fifth circuit did, or if they will say, well, you get you get at least some due process protections here. It's not you know totally uh, you know absent from the situation. So we'll we'll see though. You know, like like I said, I think I could see it going either way. I lean more towards the uh, the the sort of ACLU uh, middle ground that the court might come because I just think that practical argument uh, about how many state you know, how how popular this particular restriction is. Um, makes sense. And that ACLU middle ground gives them a way to do it without massively, you know, expanding uh, the, the power of the, I don't know, that expanding is the wrong word, but without giving the government a really large um, leeway, a lot of leeway on their power to restrict firearms. So um, I don't know, but we'll see. And I really appreciate you coming on to, to give us your point of view, because yeah. I, I, we'd like to have as many different points of view as we can on this podcast. I appreciate you having me. So. And so where can people find more of your work if, they, if they'd like to do that? Um, I, most of my uh, articles about gun violence and gun control are available on SSRN.com. Um, if you search for uh, on that for my name, um, and they're available in the law reviews and academic journals where they've been published. So, okay, wonderful. Yeah. And uh, perhaps we'll have you on again in the future to talk more about these issues. Maybe we'll even... Maybe we'll, we'll dive more deeply into the, the historical uh, relitigating of uh, Bruin and, and Heller uh, at some point. Maybe people will be interested in hearing. More it doesn't there. hurt to talk uh, about it. So, no, it certainly yeah. doesn't. And maybe we could have somebody who's more uh, your equal in that regard and, you know, another uh, law professor on the other ish, side of the issue or, or historian or what have you. But sure. uh, but I appreciate you coming on and we're going to head on over to our news update now. OK, thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. I'm about to head on uh, vacation here. Uh, You're sort of uh, the kind of vacation that you take when you run a business (laughs) yourself, (laughs) which is like a short three-day weekend vacation. But we're going to, uh, me and my girlfriend are going to Assateague Island, which is where they have the wild horses. Oh, nice. Uh, on the on the Maryland coast there. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. Um, I think uh, Jake Tapper's 
first book takes place on this island too. There's communist spies, so hopefully, yeah, hopefully you don't run into those. those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll see. Uh, I don't have a Maryland concealed carry permit yet, so I don't want to run into any communist spies. Yeah, uh, at this <laughs> this moment, but uh, hopefully we'll run into some wild horses. That'll be fun. Not run into them literally. I don't want to get too close to them, but they are very beautiful. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't realize there was uh, wild horse populations out on the eastern seaboard like that. So that's that's really cool. Hopefully, you guys have fun. Yeah, they're right on the right on the shore. It's a it's pretty cool. So we get to do the beach and and the horses. So it should be good. And I think it's going to be nice weather. It's a little bit later in the summer here, so uh, hopefully we won't be sweating too bad, and we can enjoy the the ocean and and the and all the nature out there and. And on Astig Island. I'm looking forward to it. What about you? What are you up to? Uh, you know, just getting ready for football season. I just had uh, my fantasy football draft in one of my leagues. So, I'm, you know, it's been a long summer without football. I'm not really much of a baseball fan, so I've kind of been without my my favorite sports. So I'm excited to get see that going. I've been conscientiously avoiding preseason football. We kind of talked before we started recording about how brutal preseason football can be. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, I watched the Eagles uh, preseason game last night, the, the third one, the last one. And that which is even really the worst one to watch because that's when nobody of any real yeah potential of being a, you know a regular starter is actually playing in the game. Uh, there was actually a super embarrassing moment um, for I thought for the Colts uh, new quarterback uh, what's his name Robinson I think he's a Florida State guy. Um, you know he drove down the field and he scored to tie the game in the you know in like the first quarter, and he did the the eagle uh wave thing to mock the eagles and i was like it's a preseason game what are you doing <laughs> this is embarrassing uh and he had a terrible game too i think he had like a 50 percent completion rating in the in the preseason against our not even our backups our like third and fourth line yeah, guys the scout team guys so <laughs> man i don't <clears throat> i don't think i've seen something that embarrassing in football in a, in a long time frankly but uh ever since that maybe the the last play that the Cowboys ran last season, <laughs> where they had <laughs> Zeke as the center, and oh, yeah. just immediately failed. If you remember that, <laughs> yeah. The, oh yeah, it was it was almost that embarrassing. Of course, this was preseason and not the playoffs, so it wasn't quite the same level. But either way, uh, yeah, it, it, it's hard to watch those games. Yeah, um, you know, you just kind of go on YouTube and watch the the video breakdowns of players that actually are going to have potential of making an impact. So I don't have to try to watch the game and see if I can spot them during the live broadcast. Uh, but, you know, my, my fantasy draft is is tonight, actually. So looking forward to that. My first one. I, I don't know how many leagues I'm even in at this point. Too many. But, but my friend group league, we're, uh, we're doing our draft tonight. So we got, we're driving out to the beach and doing a draft. So <laughs> we're going to be on this beautiful area and I'm on a computer for, I don't know how long draft takes an hour or more. Yeah. So ho hopefully it'll be worth it. Hopefully I can get a decent running back to start out. I hope I'm high enough in the draft to get to make that happen. We'll see. Um, anyway, what do we got in terms of news of the week? What headlines we have? Yeah. So to the newsletter, uh, we got an, Pretty interesting report from the Wall Street Journal. They took a look at uh, ATF revocations of federal firearms licensees. It's been a concerted policy by the Biden administration to do zero tolerance on what they perceive as violations uh, by federal firearms licensed dealers. And they found a substantial increase in the number of revocations. So 
as of this fiscal year, there's been 127 revocations. That's up from 90 last year, and that's up from 22 in 2021 when that zero tolerance policy was first announced. So it's been like a quintupling in the last two years. So definitely an increase. Yeah. And, you know, the industry, the gun industry has complained that they're revoking uh, licenses over minor paperwork yep. infractions, basically. Uh, that's That's been the complaint that they're, you know, intentionally trying to find minor things and revoke people's licenses and basically put them out of business for um, uh, over that. And this has obviously been something that's been a priority for the gun control movement for a long time. They've complained for years about ATF and uh, they've claimed there's lax enforcement and they don't revoke enough licenses. And uh, so this is certainly Biden uh, once again trying to use the tools that he has in the executive branch to uh, make the gun control movement happy. Um, because, you know, he, he can't get legislation through like he wants. Um, and so th these are the things he can do. And he's he's definitely pursuing them full steam. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's all sorts of interesting details in that story from a couple gun dealers that were interviewed and then some former agency folks that are questioning the strategy because they say that gun stores have been reliable partners in cracking down on gun trafficking yeah. and that sorts of things. So uh, readers should go ahead and check out that story. It's it's a pretty good report. Um, the next piece we got is from the Washington Post, where they did a they took a look at D.C.'s red flag law, which was passed in 2018. And they found out that a lot like other uh, blue jurisdictions with a lot of gun control laws, that their D.C. or their red flag law rather is uh, pretty rarely used. I think it's only been used something like 50 times in the last five years. Um, and we kind of see that all over the place. We see that in places like New York and California. So it's just interesting that yet another uh, sort of gun control hotspot you're not really seeing much use of red flag laws. Yeah. And, you know, the thing with red flag laws, even if you're, if you support them, uh, obviously there's a lot of controversy over these, especially in the gun rights uh, side of the aisle. Um, but even if you support them, I think advocates often uh, will blame this situation on sort of lack of understanding, lack of knowledge among the general public about what these are and how they actually work. And so, uh, if you don't have people requesting them, you, they don't get issued. Uh, <clears throat> although I will say, you know, the framing of this story from the post is interesting to me uh, be, and, and sort of plays into a lot of those concerns that I think uh, critics have of these types of laws, which is essentially the, the story. The headline is uh, DC's red flag gun seizures are low. Officials hope to change that. And it's like, well, Low, uh, you know, low, what low compared to what is the standard we're using here for low? I mean, obviously, yeah, 50 in five years, it's not a lot of them. But do we know that that's uh, what is the number that <laughs> the post seems to be <clears throat> looking for? And why is the goal? Why is the end goal to just get the number up? Right. That just seems like we're looking for to fill quotas, which is not what these laws are supposed to be about. They're supposed to be. Uh, from an advocate's point of view about, uh, you know, uh, helping people in a mental health crisis, not about filling, reaching some specific number of red flag orders issued. So I, I thought that was kind of kind of a terrible way to frame the story. Sure. Like you said, it kind of indicates some of the fears of, of folks that are uh, skeptical of these laws. Um, 
But the last uh, link we'll hit today is from Politico, which they touch on a pretty interesting dynamic in the Indianapolis mayor's race. So they have a Republican candidate there who's trying to unseat a Democratic incumbent, and he is adopting a whole host of gun control laws. Uh, Apparently, he supports an assault weapons ban. He wants to repeal permitless carry within the city limits of Indianapolis. And I think he wants to raise the age to purchase a firearm to 21 as well. So it's just uh, sort of a unique thing to see a Republican come out and support gun bans, for example. Um, I think Politico gets a little, you know, over their skis about how this could, you know, potentially signal that the Republican Party writ large is shifting on guns. And I'm not not so sure about that. I think it's more of a just a specific dynamics of this race. But it's interesting, nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take the a mayoral race in a large city as evidence of how the Republican party writ large is going to pursue things going forward. But I think it's interesting to look at because you don't see that much um, effort put into winning races in areas that the either party is not very strong in. So uh, that that's interesting to me to see, you know, I guess we'll have to see how well this guy actually performs Right. Um, to, uh, and how, you know, whether he's funded by the party and whether there's like a significant structural push to get him elected uh, in Indiana. But <clears throat> it could uh, it could certainly it, it for, foretell a sort of reversion back to where the parties actually try to compete in areas that they aren't completely 100 sh- percent locked down. You know, what I mean, like. Um, Maybe you'll see more urban Republicans who try to moderate on the issue. I think you know, it's probably not the most sophisticated method of moderating on the issue because it just sounds like he's just kind of aping what the Democrat in the race is going to be running on when it comes to guns. And so you would think they'd maybe try to uh, find some way to contrast. Uh, I think there's plenty of people in urban areas who uh aren't necessarily desiring total gun bans as, as the solution to their, uh, that they want to see, you know, I'm sure that there's plenty of maybe licensing reform stuff for concealed carry or, uh, even handgun ownership in a lot of these States. I mean, you know, Indianapolis is in a red state in Indiana, so that they may not have the same sort of, uh, owner's restrictions, but <clears throat> regardless, you could, you could, moderate on the issue while still offering a contrast, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I don't know if that's what this guy's doing, but uh, in the end, I, I'll be interested to see if you get more Republicans going into deep blue city areas, urban areas to try and <clears throat> be competitive there by, you know, moderating or changing their position on uh, from the party on certain issues like guns and vice versa for Democrats. <clears throat> oh, I apologize. Uh, you got to clear my throat here. <laughs> um, I'd be interested to see if Democrats do the same thing, trying to go in more rural areas and and take more pro-gun positions, because you haven't really seen that in either party in recent decades, really, yeah. the last decade or so. Things have become really polarized. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, if this guy wins or if you see more of this on either side, perhaps that'll signal maybe a lessening of the partisanship we've uh, really uh, gotten into, the sort of partisan stalemate over the last several years. So that's what interests me most about this. I don't think it foretells the Republican Party becoming, uh, you know, pro-gun control, but, yeah. but it could signal more of these 
attempts to uh, have the parties cross over into areas where they, they haven't been competing of late. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And like you said, it used to be the norm. So it would be interesting to see if that if we go back to that. Uh, but now I guess we'll turn to some of the stories we wrote this week, uh, well, starting with a ruling, an interesting ruling out of Massachusetts. Uh, this was actually a criminal case, but what the judge found in this case, it was a, a New Hampshire man that was charged with illegal possession of a firearm in public in Massachusetts um, because I guess he was traveling to the state and he got caught. It, the details were pretty scant in the ruling, uh, but the judge I think he had a couple charges, right? Yeah, I think it was a separate it looked like it was there a separate like case. Several separate ones. Yeah, yeah, something about being like intoxicated while operating. So I'm assuming like a DUI or something like that. Yeah, it's a, it, it kind of sounds like he was he got pulled over for a DUI and then they found a gun in his car. And so they charged him with gun possession without a license and carrying without a license in Massachusetts. Yeah. He's not from Massachusetts. Right. And what was interesting is the uh, judge in that case actually tossed those charges and said that Massachusetts requirement that out-of-staters, so non-residents, get a permit before they can carry in public is actually unconstitutional. So that's, you know, that's one of the first rulings that I've seen dealing with, you know, uh, the sec rights of public carry across state lines. So potentially big. Yeah, absolutely. It could be, could be huge uh, if, if this is something that uh, catches on. You know, obviously, we're talking about a state judge in Massachusetts, so uh, the the immediate impact is fairly limited. I would, we'd expect that the attorney general there is going to appeal this case. We haven't heard from them. He reached out, but they yeah. didn't respond. Um, <clears throat> so we'll see how long this ruling stands. But uh, it, it is done under the Bruin standard, so it could certainly be influential as other judges address the same issue. Um, under that same standard, you could see the spread and uh, national reciprocity where permits and from each state are recognized in every other state, sort of like marriage license or some other, you know, a lot of other licenses. If the, the, what the gun, sorry, the gun rights movement has wanted for years now, the top priority has been national reciprocity where all states recognize all other states permits and uh, this would be a step to that, you know, if it if it takes hold and and more judges come to the same conclusion under the Bruins. Yeah, no, you're right. Every every time that well, even when they're not in control, but especially when Republicans control Congress, you always see a national reciprocity bill introduced. Like you said, it's a long time goal for gun rights advocates. And, you know, some even thought that perhaps the Supreme Court would establish it in one of their carry rulings. We haven't seen that yet. But you're right. If you know, if this argument takes hold and and more judges find that the Bruin analysis does in fact support that, you know, perhaps we'll see uh, national reciprocity through judicial means down the road. Um, but we'll turn to our last story of the day uh, is a story you wrote actually about the Republican primary debate. So the candidates, the eight candidates that qualified had their first televised debate last week and were kind of uh, left a lot to be desired on the subject of guns and gun policy in the Second Amendment. If you want to tell us what, what you saw in that debate. Yeah, obviously, the main discussion of what was missing from the first Republican debate was that Donald Trump wasn't there and he's the front runner and uh, former president and um, who's uh, obviously currently facing a bunch of federal charges. But uh, he decided to skip the, the debate and then he sort of uh, tried to undercut it both by doing an interview that aired at the same time with uh, the former Fox News host Tucker Carlson or aired, I guess it was posted to Twitter at the same time. 
And then also by turning himself in the next day and having his mugshot be released, who's kind of, you know, attempting to um, you know, take attention away from this this debate with the other candidates. And um, it, it <clears throat> in addition to his absence, you had the absence of gun policy. There really nobody talked much about this. The only thing you got, and it's interesting too, because Fox asked, you right. know, Brett Baer asked specifically about gun policy uh, and, and what the candidates would do. They, he asked Chris Christie that first and Christie was the only one who had any sort of gun policy uh, aspect to his answer, which was that he would, um, he was criticizing the way that President Biden, uh, Biden's Justice Department has handled the Hunter Biden um, charge over possession of a gun while being a drug user. Uh, he claimed now, this is not actually correct, but he claimed that Biden uh, instituted a mandatory minimum, minimum of 10 years for that crime. Uh, and then, uh, of course, that's not the mandatory minimum. That, that is the statutory maximum, which is almost never actually given out for this particular charge. But regardless, he did have a point about uh, as well about sort of the hypocrisy of Hunter Biden not being pursued aggressively on this point, uh, despite President Biden's uh, staunch advocacy for stricter gun laws. Right. And so that that was basically the only comment of the night that had anything to do with gun policy. The rest were talking mainly about crime. And essentially, they kind of all had a very similar position of uh, more more police and tougher prosecutors. And, you know, there were some differences. Christie said that he would make federal prosecutors do more violent crime prosecutions in cities where they had weaker prosecutors. DeSantis said he would remove weak prosecutors like he's done in, uh, or what he views as weak prosecutors, uh, you know, as he's done in Florida. Um, you know, there was really just no talk at all about the Second Amendment beyond that, which is kind of surprising. You know, you'd think that these candidates would, one, want to differentiate themselves from the other candidates on stage. And, and you know, some of them have even, DeSantis in particular, has kind of gone out of his way in the lead up to his campaign to have, to, to get a bunch of credentials on this issue, to, to sign a bunch of gun reforms, uh, pro-gun reforms, right? He, he signed permitless carry, he signed uh, the, the bill that uh, bars financial institutions from uh, dropping business with gun companies, you know, for the sole purpose of the fact that they are gun companies, right? And so he th he'd done a lot of work on this issue and he, he didn't tout it at all. Uh, I think Asa Hutchinson also signed permitless carry um, when he was governor of Arkansas. Uh, so there, some of these guys could have said some <laughs> something, right? Right. Um, Ramaswamy has come out in favor of legalizing um, machine guns, which would certainly differentiate him from yeah. uh, most of the other candidates on stage. Uh, uh, and then they just didn't talk about it. And neither did President Trump uh, in his interview with Tucker Carlson. Didn't bring it up. Uh, talked about low water pressure for <laughs> I think probably about five minutes. I watched that part. Uh, he's uh, he's, he's talked about in the, that a lot in the past too. It's sort of one of, one of his pet issues, uh, interestingly enough, but he, had, he didn't talk about gun policy. And that was the other way they could have differentiated themselves yep. from the front runner, Donald Trump, because he's got some vulnerabilities on this issue yep. from, from the right. You know, he, he instituted the bump stock ban, uh, 
unilaterally. It's been found unconstitutional since then. Um, he made a bunch of comments supportive of different gun uh, control proposals. You know, take the guns first, due process second. You know, there, there's definitely areas where these candidates could draw a contrast and, and nobody did. Yeah, no, especially I think the point is, you know, it's one thing. It's a first debate. There's a lot of topics you have to hit. Yeah. It's one thing if you don't touch guns. But to your point, Brett Baer specifically posed the question, you know, we've seen a lot of shootings in Milwaukee, for example, which is where the debate took place. You know, Democrats blame that on access to guns and they say Republicans don't support gun control. What do you think about that? Right. And not one candidate took the opportunity, you know, in a Republican primary with a primary electorate to say, I stand yep. firm in support of the Second Amendment or, you know, you know, whatever they might say. I don't believe the Second Amendment was even mentioned nope, once. Not once. Uh, nobody said the words yeah. Second Amendment. So I was pretty surprised by that. I don't, we'll have to take a look at the, you know, maybe the polling and what we're seeing, like if there's some trend that they're all taking note of or if this is just a pure missed opportunity for most of them, um, you know, because and a lot of these guys aren't necessarily going to make it to a second debate. Right. right. Like they're the the rules tighten after this one. Yep. And so, yeah, maybe it'll get addressed more directly in the next debate. I would hope so. Right? I mean, Republican primary voters, I think, are very interested in this issue. and want to know what policies these guys support um, and want to hear them talk about it and, and gauge whether they're genuine or not. So um, I would hope that we get that at some point. And uh it's just kind of surprising not to see anyone try to differentiate on that specific issue in this particular debate. Um, yeah, but that's all we've got for this week. Um, if you want to read more about all these things, you can head over to reload.com. You can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, which we send out as the name implies once a week. We don't flood you with a bunch of emails. Uh, and if you want to support this reporting and also get access to our analysis pieces, that are reserved for members, you should buy yourself a membership. Um, you will also get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show and participate in our Q&As when we do those. We just did one last week, if you want to check that out. Uh, and yeah, it, it's something that lets us keep the lights on here, lets us do this reporting and, and bring it to you. So uh, yeah, please consider buying a membership today if you can. And if not, please consider liking, reviewing this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family who might be interested, and uh, perhaps giving us a thumbs up on YouTube where you can watch these to see our, our beautiful faces while we talk. <laughs> um, uh, but that's all we've got, and we will see you guys again real soon.